Not Safe for Network. I'm Biggs. I'm Brandon. I'm Carl. Well, let me talk about Woodstock 3 really quick. So there is a documentary that went up a couple weeks ago. It's a new series on HBO called Music Box, which is produced by Bill Simmons. And they did the first episode. The rest of them are coming, I believe, in October. They're going to start leaking out. But right now, we've got this one. And I was fascinated by it because I didn't pay a lot of attention to Woodstock 3 when it happened, outside of everybody being like, fuck Limp Bizkit, right? Right. But I think it was really... And still, fuck Limp Bizkit. Yeah, still. And he, have you seen him lately, by the <laughs> yeah, way? Yeah, I did. I saw they... I uh, actually watched part of the uh, Lollapalooza because they were streaming it on Hulu last week. Fred Durst is an old man. <laughs> well, and he's got bleach blonde hair. But it's like, like white though. Yeah. And like hipster glasses and shit. Like it looks like he's going for James Gunn, but he's got that douchey Fred Durst face. <laughs> like I just don't like it. It's like a cross between like like James Gunn and Eminem almost. <laughs> he looks terrible. Poor guy. No. No. <laughs> Why are we body shaming Fred Durst? I'm not. I hate him. Why? That just comes with it. Because of all the music he put me through Limp that Biscuit? my roommates had. Yeah. yeah. We had a local band that used to cover Limp Bizkit all the time at our little <laughs> that local make it right. concerts. I know exactly where you're going. Go ahead. Was that your band? <laughs> no, that was not my band. Okay. You know whose band that was. Was that Sam's band? Yes. Oh, Sam. <laughs> Sam, well... He did a good job. Yeah. I mean, he covered it well. <laughs> low bar, low bar to clear, like relatively. Uh, he can, I, I can't play any music, so he's already better than me at that. But uh, Limp Biscuit? Yeah, and he What's, did like Kid Rock. I mean, they're not and, great, but. No, they're but pretty much off. Why do we hate him, though? Who, Fred Durst? Yeah. Because he's a fucking. All right, you want to know when you I give was me like. a good reason. I, I'll give you the Fred reason Durst. that I got turned off to I'm Limp Biscuit. Trying to turn away from hate. I, I will give the initial thing that turned me off of Fred Durst, okay? So his cover of Faith was the first thing that hit, right? Like that was what made them popular in the first place when, when he covered Faith. And I was listening to it on Seattle radio because we were driving through there for unimportant reasons. And then they had a quick little snippet of an interview with him. And they were asking him about the song. He's like, the bones of the song are amazing, but George Michael really fucked it up. So we did it right. <laughs> and I was like, fuck you. Like, right away, I just hated him right out of the gate. Like, <laughs> gotta, You got to defend your man, George Michael. That put a bad taste in my mouth with Fred Durst. And then, like, literally everything else he ever did that I heard about was also, like, fuck Fred Durst. It was actually Woodstock 99 that, like, all the shit that came out, like, at the time, like, not t- I mean, we're going to talk about the documentary in a second here, but like all the stuff just I – you heard about like on MTV News and actually MTV News kind of 
they were there under the, the rug. No, but, no, no, no. They no, were there. They were, they were there the entire time, and like there was so much footage from MTV News that they used in the doc that was not complimentary to <laughs> Woodstock Three. Like hundred yeah. percent, MTV News was actually covering what was going on. They were responsible for the bands that happened ultimately because they were putting them up on a platform for like TRL and things like that. But they were definitely <laughs> showing the fucked up things that were happening at TRL, Woodstock Three. The King makers of Woodstock. Oh, <laughs> is that not like that's why Woodstock was terrible is because we let a bunch of idiots that watch MTV TRL. But those idiots the, were our generation because they were uh, calling and requesting they, it. They were a certain demographic within our generation. Yes, yeah. absolutely. But they were so, not. I so don't know if they, they were, were very vocal, truly representative of <laughs> <laughs> no, they were representative of, of like, all I of us. Like I think clearly. that's the interesting thing about the 90s and the 2000s is that I feel like the big bands of the those two decades of both those decades are the least representative bands of those decades. Like they're the most popular, they're the biggest, they get the most plays, the most album sales, but are they truly the albums and the bands that like define the decade or is it just like this corporate just went too far in those two decades so you're this getting was in, the era you're where like into corporations were like trying to just like build bands yes you you're know? getting into something that they were definitely covering in this documentary so the first thing they did was talk about the original woodstock and what the deal with that was and how everybody crashed the gates and like they lost money on it, but eventually they made it up with the movie they put out, social cachet, things like that, right? Woodstock 2, they were trying to bridge the boomers with the grunge period, right? So they're like, Woodstock 2 is like half older boomers that are playing and then like half of like Nine Inch Nails, Nirvana. Like Green Day. Green Day, yeah, yeah, like bands like that are the other half of it. So then Woodstock 3, the intention with the promoters is we're going to do what's hitting right now. But it's a selective thing of what's hitting right now. Like This was 99? 99, yeah, yes. Okay. Yeah, Woodstock 2 was 94, just Correct. for reference. And Woodstock 1, which I think they just called Woodstock, <laughs> it was 69. So Woodstock 3, they're like, we're going to take the bands are hitting right now. But really, when you look at it, for the most part, with a couple of exceptions, which I will definitely mention uh, here in a bit, because they help move along the narrative of the story, it's almost exclusively rap metal bands, or yeah. just like the more <sighs> aggressive bands for the most part. Okay, at Woodstock? Three. Rap metal. Yes. Yeah. The it's like it's like the biggest headliners of Woodstock 3 are as follows. Red Hot Chili Peppers... Which doesn't really actually, fit into that, but that they fit into on, the culture of that it. That fits more into Woodstock than it does into what I'm yeah. thinking of. Limp Biscuit, Okay. And Corn. Corn, I these knew Corn was going to be yeah, on there. I these knew are, corn was these are be the on headliners for each night. Like, these are the people that. Wow. People were like showing up to see the most. Kid Rock's there. And of course he is. Yeah, of course he's there. So get this. And DMX is there. I have a little story about going to OzFest, right? So I went to OzFest in 2000. And OzFest 99, this was the lineup for OzFest 99. We had Metallica. We had Megadeth. We had Rush. We had Primus. We had Tool. White Zombie. Fucking just like the most Seven dust. unbelievable lineup of awesome fucking def 
bands that defined metal for like not just their own generation, but the next generation, Okay, you know? And then I went in 2000. So this is a year <laughs> later, right? And it apparently <laughs> the same people that did a bunch of promotion for Woodstock 99 got a hold of Sharon Osbourne because Sharon Osbourne took over booking the bands. She was like in charge of the festival. She wasn't in charge of it from like, the start? But no. Okay. Uh, she took, because Ozzy was, he wasn't like in charge, you know, but they had, he, he I know she was They his have promoter. this vocal presence, you know, being, it being called Ozfest and him being Ozzy Osbourne right. in some form of, whether it's solo Ozzy or Black Sabbath. And Sharon Osbourne be actually became famous with rock circles for her promotion, like long before Ozfest was there. Like she right. was, I she was Ozzy's promoter and she was a legendary performer even outside of, or not performer. Promoter. But, promoter yeah, even yeah. outside she's of Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah, yeah, she's like an agent. And so anyways, uh I we go in 2000 and the lineup is suddenly things like uh Marilyn Manson, Disturbed. They're trying to bring up these new bands and they've like shunted all the old bands that are like who we honestly wanted to go and see. You know, they also there were some up and coming bands that were about the music and not really about the spectacle of it. And they were shunted off to like the third stage in the middle of the day. Bands like Meshuga, who are actually like super talented, like math rocky kind of guys. And the main stage uh, was given over to uh, what's that one? The big one. Uh, Incubus. No, Incubus is not heart heavy enough for Ozfest, unfortunately. But you know who is 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 crawling in my skin. Oh, Lincoln Park. Lincoln Park. And uh, what was the other one? It had the drummer from... but he turned into a vocalist and he was married to Pamela Anderson Lee, oh, Tommy Lee. Tommy Lee. And they, and they're Jones. big. Not and Tommy Lee Jones. And their big, uh, their big hit, hit music video on MTV was get naked, get, get, get naked. And that was yeah. main stage. And like, you know, they were just like promoting bands like Kitty, who I actually did like Kitty, but uh, I'm worried that my, you know, 17-year-old self liked Kitty for all the wrong reasons, you know? Not, and I listened to them recently, and their cover of Run Like Hell uh, is actually pretty solid. And they also did all quit being rock and roll musicians to go finish college, so I'm proud of them for that, <laughs> looking back. And it was a lot more abrupt with Ozfest, but I think Woodstock also happens way more infrequently. At this point, Ozfest was like a yearly thing. And we've only had three Woodstocks yeah. at this yeah. point. Because yeah. three sounds like three killed the vibe. Yeah, they tried to do it, and they like <clears throat> Woodstock four, and they were going to put it out in 2020. Like I don't so even understand why <laughs> they didn't work out. Why would lot. they go with these bands that are like go with the bands that belong at Woodstock? And it'll still be huge fucking draws. Like uh, what's the one where they do like the music? video where they're all on treadmills oh Uh, okay go okay go okay go put them there uh, vampire weekend alt j uh i got a list of fucking bands that belong at woodstock you know like that super like there's a subverse subversive element but it's also relatively like friendly yeah you know yeah so you're really hitting on one of the areas of it and especially when you were talking about how the corporate structure kind of lifted them up there's a lot of talk in this documentary about how they built up 
some of these bands. But I think there's so many missteps along the way that led to this that it's interesting to go through some of them. For example, the gate crashing. It was a real problem in the first Woodstock. It was a real problem in Woodstock 2. They still lost money off of it. You know they made it up in like videos and CDs, CDs later. But like they lost money on the day of, on the days of the festival because even in Woodstock 2, they crashed the gates. So this time they put it on a military base. So it's all on a fucking tarmac. Problem number one, right? Ugh. Like, and it's hot. It's as hot fuck. as fuck. It's all hitting the tarmac. So it's like reverberating up. There's no grass anywhere. It's all tarmac, right? So that's a problem. Problem number two, you're on a military base. They allude to it in the documentary, but like you're talking about a place that's got an aggro energy anyway. Like that's where you're having this with all these aggressive bands, right? Problem number three, their entire security line. It's not people who were security guards and they were like, hey, would you like it's to like do the Woodstock military- 3? No, it's people that they brought in and they said, here's what you got to do to be a security guard. Go to this classroom. It's a two hour class. And for an hour and a half, they just went through every answer to every question on the test. And then the last half hour, they take the test. So that is all their training. So they show up and half of them just slip off into the concert. Half of them may not even be there. Like nobody is doing their job. Nobody's telling anybody no. Then the water thing, a lot's been made up about like $20 waters. Not true, by the way, it's $4 waters. But if you put yourself into a 1999 position, $4, that's four times the amount you would pay for a bottle of water. Now, why is that such a big thing? In itself, it shouldn't be that big. I've been to concerts where they fucking, they just fuck you in every way for any any kind of concession. Oh, yeah. fest. So the, I the problem is it. there's like and by the way, uh Brandon and I went to a warp tour two thousand? Two thousand. Yeah, and it was in Bozeman, hot as shit. There's like one place to get water that's in the fairgrounds that you have to sneak out to get to. You can't get water otherwise. So that was like a night. What, I, like only beer? Uh no, we kept slipping off for water because like no, dude, no, no, it was, I mean you couldn't you couldn't they get, did you have, could buy bottles of water, but Oh, okay. Way overpriced, right? right. Yeah, so, they're like $6 bottles of water. Yeah. And they had a very limited supply. Yes. So, like, that's a problem. Like, this thing, the reason why the bottles of water is so important to the story is they have this area that's just got lots of water and it's it comes out of these spouts into these giant, for lack of a better term, barrels, right? So, like, it comes out into it, the barrel's constantly full, and then it comes out in the spout so you can, like, fill up your thing with water or you can, like, get some water and dump it on yourselves. The problem with that is that because there's no security guards anywhere around the water, people immediately start leaping into the barrels naked and they're like washing themselves in the barrels. So that water kind of off the table because nobody wants to touch that water at that point, right? So, like, that's a problem. Then the sewage backs up on the very first night. Like, all the outhouses overflow. So, it's filled with literal shit everywhere that there's an outhouse. Like, if you see people walking around covered in mud in Woodstock 3, it's not mud. There is not mud at Woodstock 3. It's just shit that people were covering themselves from. And they couldn't really smell that it was shit on the first day. By the second day, 
when it's sitting out in the sun, everybody was very aware, right? And then you once again, you have people washing themselves off, like washing the shit off inside these barrels. So the water is completely undrinkable now. You've got people who died from heat stroke there. Like I think there was like 15 people that died from heat stroke. Tons of hospitalizations from heat stroke. That's on like day one. It gets worse every day that goes on. Then they start talking about the societal aspects of this. Okay. So when was Columbine? Do you remember? 99, was it? 99. It's in the air. So like people are fucking pissed off and you've got Y2K looming over the whole thing. And you guys remember when that was a thing. They're just constantly barraging you in the press that like your finances are going to get fucked up. There might be missiles launched, all this stuff. So whether you believed in it or not, there's this fucking tension in the air. Then they start talking about how they're trying to like take all these boomer ideals and like throw it on top of this. But people are trying to do their own thing. So like people are pissed off off about that too and you remember dude 99 everybody our age is fucking filled with angst right like yeah we just were like more than 20 year olds are now like it was fucking hanging in the air everybody was just angry and then they top everything else off by talking about girls gone wild like it was at its fucking peak at this time so you have girls that are showing up and taking off their tops a lot but then on top of it as it gets more aggro as the festival's going on people are yelling show us your tits like fucking aggressively people are like grabbing women groping them like there's sexual assaults all over I think there was a confirmed 49 sexual assaults but they're everybody's like there's that was way only more. like reported no there was like nine reported then this woman who worked for a wanna say spin magazine i could have the magazine wrong but she was a reporter she like put it out on the internet and was like hey if you were assaulted at woodstock 3 please contact me so i can like get stuff on your story and she found like 40 more cases that were never reported because people were like who is i going to report it to like cops can't do anything it's a giant festival nobody and then like you don't you don't know who i mean it was just so anonymous that you could report it but then you're still not getting anywhere because yeah you know that was always an issue especially even at like our little going back to our little local shows like if a girl wanted to crowd surf you know she was unfortunately taking in that risk that hands were just going to come up just to grab yep. her in places and not to support her it too. not to support her and crowd surfing and keep her afloat like they would do for any guy but they're like oh there's an ass i can squeeze there's a tit i can grab and feel so it's like, mismanaged what's so special about there's bad feeling? energy and it's, it's like, just a really act, bad yeah, time it's just, it's just a energy. really bad time for like our generation in general like it's filled with absolute angst so it's this powder keg that's like sitting there they show like everybody's there for like metallica limp biscuit corn like to a lesser degree chili peppers like everybody's there for those bands and they're the more aggressive bands so you got the people that are like trying to mosh pit then on top of it you have the speaker setup right you've got the front stage but it's a tarmac and it goes way the fuck back so they have five sets of speakers daisy chained all over so if you're not in that front section it just fucking echoes and echoes and echoes so you can't even hear the music super clearly so the sound's fucked up the whole reason 
you went to the concert in the first place. It's just like so much crazy shit. And then so they talk about how it was such a masculine, like bullshit vibe that was there. But it even starts with the booking of the bands. They booked one female artist each night and that was it. You had 30 bands, I think. And like three of them are females. They have them staggered for each night. You've got Cheryl Crow. You have Alanis Morissette. And then you have the one who I'd feel the worst about, Jewel. Because, like, Jewel goes up there on the third night and people are just, like, exhausted. And they show this footage of her singing. And there's just tons of people in the crowds, like, yelling, like, show us your tits and all this stuff at, like, Jewel. Like, they're fucking yelling at her. Just, like, it's ridiculous, dude. Then, like, when Limp Biscuit plays, I think, on the second night, they ask him, you're towards the end of your set. Can you just, like, get something that's a little more relaxed? Because, like, people are, are feeling not great right now. So he goes out and plays break stuff right after he hears Yeah, that, that was the third night. It's <laughs> the second night. I'll get to the third night, okay? So, like, people are getting pissed off. They're, like, ripping off parts of, like, uh, towers and shit and, like, grabbing the plywood. And then people are standing on the plywood and, like, surfing across Fred Durst. is like, that's pretty fucking cool, like, looking at him and that. Now, this is not all Fred Durst's fault. But there is a thing when they talk with the artist where they're like, you can't blame the artist. You can't blame the artist. And I'm going to say, you can't fully blame the artist. But you have a microphone and people are there to see you. That's fucking bullshit. The artist does have a responsibility, whether they like to admit that they have a responsibility ability or not. That's where Limp Bizkit absolutely falls flat. Now, Corn, to their credit, there was people that were like in front that were grabbing women's breasts and stuff like that, like clearly not wanted. And Jonathan Davis fucking just is like, fuck that guy, like fuck that guy up. You shouldn't be doing that, which I don't know. You should say fuck that guy up in that kind of setting. But at least he was trying to call attention to like, don't do this. So I'll give him credit there. The third night, the Chili Peppers, who I never really hear about this at all. Shit, like they tear down the walls. People are like, wake up in the morning. They're fucking pissed off. You have people who are just hammering shit, just hammering the walls. They start tearing down the walls. And these are like fucking fortified military structures. They're like tearing them down. So the fence is coming down. Then they start burning shit while the Chili Peppers are playing. They like leave. Well, the Chili Peppers were playing cover of fire by... Yes, they come back for an encore and the, the mayor of the town literally begs them like, please... When you go out for an encore, try and calm people down. Like, this is getting out of control. So they come back and play fire, which, like, they don't talk with the Chili Peppers. But I'd imagine that was them trying to, like, uh, do a callback to the original Woodstock. Right. Doesn't play that way when shit's on fire and you're singing fire. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, like, every level of this was fucking stupid. Just fucking stupid over and over again. It's like a fire festival that actually happened. Yeah. If the fire festival had a- festival had actually happened, it would have probably <laughs> turned out like this. If you it take was... the progression of the shit show that was the fire f- festival, yeah. but actually they pull it off. Yeah. <laughs> then it would have been just still continue to be a shit show, right? It's not like it's going to magically be this amazing experience. But yeah, I mean, just the very initial choice of where they put it was, <gasps> it was like doomed from that moment. It's And I couldn't help but make the fire festival comparison because it's I thought it's about it too. it's very apt it's fascinating how when this much money is on the line the lengths that people are willing to go to to execute what will obviously fail like they they could not have looked at this and not foreseen how do you not foresee an outdoor festival on a tarmac how do you not foresee that 
or like not you, having properly you, trained security. You wi- <sighs> yeah, that is willingly overlooking things and intentionally not giving a fuck. This is not giving a fuck. This is not incompetence. This is like evil stupidity. Caring about That's called all negligence. Th- caring about all the wrong things. Being like, we need to cover our losses instead of being like, we need to take care of all these people that come to our festival. And like, we need to book these corporate sponsored bands instead of like, we need to bring in bands that represent the spirit in which this festival was started in in the first place like it seems like everything was done for completely the wrong reasons to begin with and it can't help but be a miserable failure moby was there because they were doing so at night every single night up until they started the shows again they were doing raves in these giant tents and so they brought moby in and he's excited because he's like and by the way he's one of the voices of reason in this documentary i believe it he's the only musician that i watched who seemed like they fully grasped what happened, their part in it, and what went wrong. Like every other musician at some point starts to like work the don't blame. Yeah, deflect things. Moby comes off great in this. (laughs) But like he talked about like I was really little and went to the original Woodstock. He's like, I remember images like some stuff. But he's like, so we were excited to go to Woodstock 3. We were going to be there the whole night. The first thing that happens when he shows up and they have this video footage of like him with his band and he's pissed off because he's like, look at this. And they show this sign of all the bands where they like engraved it and there's no Moby and he's like it's attention to detail like this stuff this, yeah. you need to pay attention to the little things and it's like you realize when he's talking in that he's not talking about the ego thing of like I'm not on the sign he's already getting uncomfortable because he's realizing they're not paying attention to little details they play the second night and he says everybody just looks wiped out who's there at the fucking rave and he's like the second we could we just got the fuck out of there because we were yeah. like this is not going to go well this the- is going to get worse yeah, and he's not going to be able to, like, save things. So the best thing he can do is just abandon ship. Yeah, and he's not on a giant stage <laughs> but either. He, like, he's in a tent. Like, and he flying. sat through and, like, did his thing, too. Like, it's not like he ran away before he played. Yeah, there's just so many things with this. But I thought it was a really good documentary because they handled so many areas that went around Woodstock 99. And they looked at the big picture. And they finally end by pointing out that about a month later, Coachella launches its first show. And it goes off well. They have free water. They have actual security there. They're, like, not trying to gouge everybody at every turn. They're, like, think about the area that they set up in. You know, they do all of the little things right. And that's why Coachella is still going. And Woodstock 3 is just known as an utter shit show that (laughs) killed Woodstock. Did Coachella rise from the ashes of Woodstock 3? Woodstock 3? Yeah. I mean, like a month later, it's still going every year. Would you say that Woodstock 3 was destined to fail so that Coachella... Like everything happens for a reason. I don't believe in destiny, so no. But I think that's a bigger philosophical. Yeah, me neither. I was trying. I don't know what I was trying to do. I think that the idea of like anything happening for a reason is terrifying. See, the worst part about the fire festival is you can see all the shit that went wrong at Woodstock '99, and then you're like, oh, we're not gonna. Fix that for the fire festival. Yeah. What if we took a promoter who, instead of being incompetent, was incompetent and a fucking megalomaniac, evil? Yeah. I mean, like he was straight up taking advantage of yeah. people. Well, you know, it's like it's the difference between stupidity and dumbness. Like dumbness is like it's forgivable. It's 
innocent. It's almost noble in a way. Like it's something that you can laugh at yourself about dumbness is. You know, I did something dumb. It's funny. You know, nobody was hurt, you know. But stupidity is like the kind of thing where it's – and sometimes it's willful ignorance. Sometimes it's somebody telling you the facts and you saying, fuck you. Yeah. I'm going to keep doing it the way I want to do it even though you've informed me because I refuse to – you know, and there's a million examples and a lot that we can, can get give, into that are super political and whatnot. Can I give an example of dumbness and stupidity from within this documentary with the Woodstock 3 promoters? Yeah. Dumb is this one guy who, like, helped the original Woodstock go and he was just dumb. He just didn't think out things, right? Like, you can tell there's he's just a big dumb dumb. There's not a lot going on in his head. He seems to be somewhat unaware that Woodstock 3 is the shit show that it was. Like, he just <laughs> seems not with it, right? The other promoter is like aggressively trying to change the narrative around it. And there's a part where they're talking about the sexual assaults. And he's like, look, I'm just going to be honest. Like there's topless women everywhere around there. This shit's going to happen if you're running around topless. And it's like, dude, Dude, do you know what year you're giving this interview in? Because like that that shit might have flown in 2000 given those interviews, even though it's objectively wrong. At least culture was more there with you. We're not there anymore. And he's still talking. Talking like that. That's the example of stupid, I would well, say. Well, yeah, you know, Me Too has made a lot of strides forward in a lot of different avenues, but it's going to take a long time for it all to be dismantled. Blizzard Activision, who makes World, World of War- Warcraft, Hearthstone, Call of Duty, all that shit, got hit with like a class action lawsuit for a pervasive, toxic environment where sexual assault was rampant and guys would like do like stall crawls where they would go through the stalls of the key, like the different cubicles and just get shit faced during work hours. And they would like, while they were going through the, they'd be crawling, literally crawling through the cubicles, drunk off their asses, like leering at women and in the cubicles and whatnot, who, what have you. And so far, like, uh, the CEO has resigned and, uh, you know, they've, they continue to lose sponsor after sponsor for all their, like their Overwatch is their, one of their big first person shooter games. And they're losing a bunch of sponsors for their like their their competitive leagues and stuff and it's and then that is leading to more people coming forward and being like yeah it's not just blizzard activision it's a basically every major video game company has this atmosphere you know and so it's like you know me too kind of it started in hollywood and if it's happening in Hollywood, it's happening like a hundred times worse in the lower yes. income sectors. Yeah. And I think so that like, was more what Me Too was, was it, like it got it got it's attention the, it's because the foot of in the Hollywood. Door. Yeah. yeah. It got attention because of Hollywood, but it was a movement that was already happening <clears throat> where people were like saying Me Too in their actual lives, not like in the Hollywood system. It's just like the sensationalized aspects of it. I mean, quite frankly, the, the aspects of it that we talked about on podcasts over the years because like that's the big story i'm not going to tell you about susan who i know because like i'm not sure that relates to the content of the episode but like that's why like we think of me too with actresses but it was actually bigger than that yeah and i mean it hopefully 
it will work in other avenues. I mean, one of the advantages that celebrities have is that they get a lot of attention, you know. Uh, one of the biggest, you know, one of the areas where sexual assault is the worst is uh, is uh, cleaning maids in hotels and shit. Like they go in to clean the room thinking the room is empty and some dude's in there and yep. just goes after him. And uh, you think anyone – and, you know, they'll have uh, – not to be like – to racially profile or anything, but there's a large amount of these women that are illegals and they can't go to the cops. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so they're not reporting, you know. And then even people that aren't illegals and are having this happen to them and they're, you know, yeah. what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? You know, nobody believes me anyways. Could, we could have a better immigration <laughs> system. That would clear up a lot of these problems. But well, I'm just well, we could, we could change the yeah. culture and, you know. Raise our children right, but that's hard. We should act. <laughs> what we should actually do is come up with a ribbon that's like a unique color that we haven't done yet, just so that people can wear it at the Oscars for one year and then never think about it again. I want like a frame that I can put around my profile photo on Facebook, dude. That, yeah, but you want to talk about results? But only one that lasts, <laughs> like a temporary one that only lasts for like seven days. Yeah, and like it's it it's automatically seven back. weeks, so you don't have to go back and change the profile, and it disappears would, from I your profile because hate... I don't want people to go back and remember i would hate know. to forget to take that off of my profile after a period of time <laughs> what a pain in the ass dude thanks for doing that for me facebook <laughs> but i mean if they didn't do that then how would i put the next one up or do they just all pile on each other and it's just like you can't even see your picture anymore because it's, it's just, just like black nine eleven. never forget <laughs> breast cancer awareness you must be a big pride supporter no it's like pride. seven different causes that just <laughs> Outlined by creative. <laughs> yeah. We could do that. We could trick conservatives into we have them put all of those on and then they accidentally put up a rainbow flag. There has been a celebrity death. And it, whether it's major or not depends on when you watched television or what kind of television you watched. But it was uh, Marky Post. Oh, from Night Court. Yeah, Marky Post. Bummer. She was 70. She died of cancer. Wow. In my head, she's still 30 with like giant hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The last time I saw her was in an episode of 30 Rock mm -hmm. where they – Where they're doing a new finale for Night Court. They made <laughs> – yeah. They got awesome. them all back and she was pretty great in it. I remember watching a lot of Night Court. I don't re vividly remember anything from Night Court. I vaguely remember uh, – Bull. Bull for sure, and John Larroquette. Yeah, is the one I remember the most because I also watched a shitload for some reason as like a ten-year-old. Maybe I was watching the John Larroquette show where yeah. he's like the manager yeah. of a bus, bus station, <laughs> and I'm like, like I don't know why that somehow resonated with a ten-year-old, <laughs> but apparently it, was, it did because I watched right. the shit out of it. It was all right. I, you know what I think I resonated the most with was the homeless guy well, can I, <laughs> that lives in the phone booth. Can I say something about Night Court <laughs> and you here? Thinking about the style of humor that Night Court did, I think that that actually, weirdly enough, might have been very influential in your taste of comedy later because it was the only primetime comedy that was irreverent. They would have Yakov Smirnoff off. A bunch of ones, right? And they would talk about immigration a little bit on this one A story, but then on the B story, maybe 
maybe bulls thinking about going to outer space and trying <laughs> to think like how to pull this off. They would just have the craziest fucking stories. And then like the judge who Harry Anderson, who's the lead, is also doing magic tricks in his spare time. Now for see no real Harry reason. Anderson. This is the weird thing about Harry Anderson is I watched him in Night Court. And I know he's Harry the Hat. And Cheers. And Cheers. But what I know him from the most is that... Dave's World. Dave's World. <laughs> where he I was like going, a fictional like, version of, of Dave things. Barry. <laughs> and like I remember fondly reading Dave Barry's whimsical newspaper editorials yeah, you know, too. as a kid. And uh, I never read any of his books because it's like, all right. I could read you for like half a newspaper page, but an entire book, that's a bit much when I it would comes say to that dude's sense of humor. 75% of them are collections of, of news articles. So like if you read his column, you've read most of his books. Right. So what was really funny is I thought Dave Barry was playing himself in that show. So I didn't even know who <laughs> Harry Anderson was. You thought it was really Dave Barry? I thought Barry. it was Dave Barry like bringing his column to life basically – on his own and not knowing that it's like a completely different person playing him. I knew that they were all actors. Right. But I thought that it was you like one of those. You thought he was an actor and a columnist? No, I thought he was a columnist <laughs> who was like, they said, Get, why they don't gave you, a chance you to play, his own story? Just play or? yourself. Why don't you just play yourself? You thought it was a thing where he went into the pitch meeting and he was like, I want to play myself. <laughs> no, I think, like, I don't think I thought it that about it that deeply. I just made the assumption and went on with my life at the time. Because you were like 10 or whatever. Because I was a <laughs> child. Yeah. Because I wasn't, I didn't think about things yeah. that as deeply as I do now. Well, or I don't know, deeply, thoroughly, maybe. Yeah. That's probably <laughs> more accurate. <laughs> Sometimes you just like, you make a decision about a thing and then you just, until somebody challenges your decision, what reason would you have to like revisit it? Yeah. Like that Tom Segura story I told. I was just I, thinking I, of that. Where somebody tells you something wrong and you just assume the rest of your life that it's and true. And you spread it because you don't oh, question yeah. what they told you. This Tom Segura's dad told him, oh, Tommy Lee Jones is gay. So then he spent the next like 15 years telling people that. <laughs> Did you know Tommy Lee Jones is gay? Then he like tells that to somebody who knows Tommy Lee Jones. It's like, I've known him for 40 years. He is not gay. I knew him in college. <laughs> I met his wife and his children. <laughs> And so, like, Tom Segura calls up his dad, like, why would you do that? <laughs> He's like, I don't know. I thought he was. <laughs> He's like, don't you think we should stop saying that? He's like, well, yeah, now. <laughs> Dovetailing back to Mark, your post, I do want to say, so if anybody remembers Nycourt who's listening to this, which means you'd have to be our age or older, I yeah. assume, for or the for most some... part, or watching A&E reruns back like I was going to say, maybe you ago. watch, uh, what do you call What's that one? Uh, Nick at Night? Yeah. Guess what? Nick I guess that might guess what kind of run. shit Nick at Night plays now? Well, not, no, it's not, newer than that now. It, like, I, Nick yeah. at Night is from stuff like 15 years ago now. <laughs> that 70s show plays on Nick at Night. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that 70s show is probably I, no, too I'm new pretty sure I, at this no, point. Actually, I th- I'm pretty yeah, yeah, too, too old, old I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, Night Court did a thing where if you take the judge and you take John Larroquette off the table, almost everybody who was on that show, and Richard Mole, 
take him off the table too, but like pretty much everybody else on that show was like replaced at some point during the run of the show. Like they constantly had somebody who was like filling this role and then after a season or two would quit and then they would replace it with another actress. So for example, you had Bull as the main bailiff, but you always had one other bailiff and they were always trying to get a woman in there and they had this little tiny like grouchy See, I keep, woman. I always keep remembering the, the black bailiff. Uh, are you thinking of Mac? Yeah. He's not a bailiff. He was like doing something with paperwork. He wasn't like a bailiff. He he had some kind of paperwork role on that show. Maybe he was the clerk or something. He was yeah. still an officer. He did. He had some kind of role. All the, the main characters cop, were like, right? Bailiffs yeah, bailiff is like the people who usher people in and out of the thing. And like they, they deal with something if there's violence or whatever. But they would have like the, this really old woman for the first like season. And then she died in real life. So they were replace her with another little spiteful woman character and then I don't know what happened with her but she left after a couple of seasons and they brought in Marsha Warfeld who actually was the one actress they had who looked like she could do the job of a bailiff she was very big and very commanding and it made sense and she was like the no shit like she was exactly what you would want in a bailiff whereas like Bull is big but you would not want his his bailiff because he's too dumb right (laughs) (laughs) and Marky Post was a replacement they had a different defense attorney and she was like the love interest of Harry's character and then she left the show and they replaced her with Marky Post early on. So what I'm saying is like there was all these variations of a certain role in the show and whenever somebody stepped out the next person who came in almost always took on all the characteristics that the (laughs) previous person had. Marky Post was the best. She stepped in, it was a replacement but she's the one everybody remembered because she was actually really good and she was really good at playing off of Harry Anderson and John Larroquette so much so that like those three were like the main crux of the episodes you know like bull was like comic relief yeah but those three were always every plot hinged on those three so i want to give credit to marky post it's not easy to come in and replace an actress and then become the defining role and she did that so well done let's talk about the suicide squad all right so i think we all saw this on the xd screen right yeah i've seen it twice now did you watch it on HBO Max? Yeah. Yeah. I was watching it on HBO Max when I got picked up. So I I got as far as, yeah, I got pretty, they, uh, when they find Flag again and they <laughs> kill all the people. <laughs> not knowing they're not their enemies. Ugh. Well, they were basically told like he was captured and like yeah. used extreme prejudice like. We should say really quick, we're going to spoil the shit out of this, but I do want to do a pitch really quick. Go to the movies for this one. Like, there is a very specific thing that I think should be seen in the movie theaters, and that is Starro. Like, Starro is so fucking goofy looking, and when he's towering over the city walking... I just cannot describe how fucking hilarious it is to see, like, a 25-foot version of Starro in front of you walking along with this goofy eye. Yeah, and then, like, seeing on the backside, he's almost, like, got, like, this, like, uh, gelatinous ass sort of thing going on. Yeah, and it's weird how when he's got, like, the way that his starfish legs are. Like when he like roars, they all, like, swell. Like Like his vocal cords are in his legs. (laughs) <laughs> it's a weird character. It's a starfish, so it yeah. fucking makes no sense. And I got to say, I've been saying this was the movie that I 
I as soon as I saw that Starro was the villain, which I'm glad that they actually did uh, reveal that in the first trailer. Even mm-hmm. if they didn't show you Starro, they gave you like a hint that oh, it's Starro. I'm glad because that I was like, this is gonna be good in the theater. Giant Starro. I knew it was a big starfish monster. I'm like, I don't care. I want to see the starfish in theaters. So. I've been planning to see this in the theater for Starro for months. <laughs> Starro's kind of the MVP of this for me. They had like must have been 10 shots of just showing him big over the city. And every time I they fucking even made laughed, him sympathetic. I could not help it. They made him sympathetic at the end. Yes. It was brilliant. Yeah. He is a sympathetic villain. He's not the real villain of the movie. I guess the thinker is when you no, really boil it no. down. But like the thinker is the dumbest smart person I've ever the seen. The villain of the movie <laughs> is Amanda Waller. Yeah. She oh, is yeah. the yeah. worst. And Viola Davis kicks fucking ass for making this person that I hate so goddamn much. I'm going to push back on that for just a second. I think you are right that she's the main villain of the movie. But I kind of think that in a way the thinker's worse because how many people have died or like just lost their fucking like only will it. to do anything because of the thinker? Uh, it's but he's still just like doing his own thing off in his own little corner that like, affects thing of, thousands of innocent people. <laughs> yeah, but Amanda Waller affects a lot more than that, and she makes really bad decisions. Yeah. Well, she like, makes the decisions that are right for her, her agenda. And her yeah. intel is spotty at best. Her, her like, it's no wonder that her team of misfit villains is so roughshod and, like, ramshackle. Because I also her like actual, how you're giving a performance review on Amanda Waller. <laughs> her actual, yeah, and, and, and again, Viola Davis is spectacular. She gives the role enough depth that I'm able to talk about the character like this. And just James Gunn's world building and what he took from the first movie and just improved so much, like so goddamn much. Like in and it's you should we shouldn't make comparisons with David Ayer's Suicide Squad because all that would do is turn the review of Suicide Squad James Gunn's into a beat em up of David Ayer. How about because in every single conceivable way, David Ayer's Suicide Squad is worse than this. <laughs> you Even just things, did it. <laughs> well, but I'm saying if we let's, let's take a more macro view of it of something you asked us out on the porch. You want to ask that question again? Which one was it? Is this the best DCEU? Oh movie is it yes it's an unqualified yes for me I, I just i went through the thought experiment and the only thing i hesitated on was wonder woman and then i decided yes it's better than wonder this woman. is better than wonder woman and it's not even close with the other ones not like, even yeah. close and you know what i said when i posed this question to you guys earlier i said dceu but i'll expand it to all of the dc movies going all the way back i think that this is better than any of the uh first four batmans i think it's better than the supermans i think it's better than the dark knight see i don't know that's where you lose me i think it's more entertaining than any other dc movie. it has but more I think heart the, i think the dark and knight is a better why movie. yeah why I, because I think what it, does I think I think it, it has really fantastic performances that are nuanced within it, and I think that it's actually talking about some real shit in the movie. But this, this is too. But this is 
more fun. It's like it's, it is it's one exactly. of the funnest yeah. movies I've ever seen. This movie accomplishes everything the Dark Knight does, and it's I more fun. Don't agree with that. I, but I agree do agree. Either. It's I think it's it, way more fun. It may yeah. have different. It may have different messages that it's trying to deliver, <laughs> which it obviously does. But I mean, like. At what point does any character in The Dark Knight have progression like Bloodsport getting over his rat phobia, petting Sebastian, sitting on his leg at the end of the movie, and that gives you feels? King Shark is a fucking shark. And when he makes friends, when – oh, my God. When fucking Rat Catcher 2, like, figures out a way to make him not eat them – (laughs) <laughs> by just talking to him like a with emotion and like caring like would, that shit is so much I'm not, just that okay. moment is I'm not better trying to than take, the entire I'm not trying to Christopher take away Nolan from trilogy. The, I'm not trying to take away from the examples you gave there but I would say there's more resonance for me when Batman has all the cell phones where he's able to track things with it and Morgan Freeman's character is telling him this is too much power for anybody to have and it seems like Bruce Wayne just kind of tosses it off like it's nothing but then when he accomplishes his task he has has the machine destroyed. Like, I think that that was actually some character development within that movie as well that resonates with me a little bit more because it's based off of a real-world issue. The other examples you gave are way more fun. But see, that doesn't seem... That doesn't feel to me like uh, a re- a thing of growth because with Batman, he was already going to do that. <laughs> he was always – he had pro- – see, like in that particular At example – no point did in, I not believe that Idris Elba pr- wouldn't love rats at some what? point. He, From did the you beginning. hear the way he yeah. shrieked? But it's – but my point is that that is an example of a character growing and, and changing. So No, it isn't because <laughs> – Batman had already programmed it to do that. Lucius Fox was concerned, but Batman already had that covered. Batman (laughs) didn't change in that. Lucius Fox was wrong. Lucius Fox questioned Batman, but Batman always has the right answer already and already planned for the right answer. And that is not an example of growth. Can I be honest That is an example of Batman. This probably isn't an argument worth having because I feel like like, (laughs) I'm having so much fun. I know. And it's a good one for later, but like I feel like we are (laughs) Doing the Suicide Squad in injustice, where we're almost talking too much about Batman. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, but I I don't want to take. But I was giving good examples. Okay, I'm not saying you're not. Okay, how about the fact that um, James Gunn addresses the Harley Quinn's character growth that she's already experienced over the course of the previous two movies, and he turns the entire Joker situation into subtext. She, they don't even mention joker's name at any point and even when she's directly addressing her the aftermath and her recovery from being in this toxic relationship like it's dealt with in a way that like embraces her darker side while at the same time showing like she's made real she's becoming a healthier person (laughs) <laughs> right. Which, by the way, is what Birds of Prey is, is like becoming a healthier person. But I would say that what he absolutely nails with fucking Harley Quinn is the first Suicide Squad. They were 
or excuse me, in Suicide Squad, they were very good about showing what a crazy fucking individual she was. And in Birds of Prey, they were very good at showing her emotional depth and how there's a good person underneath the surface of that. What James Gunn absolutely nails is he finds the perfect balance of those two things, yes. which hopefully they the will type... use going forward with yeah, that Yeah, it's the, it's again, best DCU it's movie. It's like, yeah, she's fucking also, crazy as yeah. shit and gonna do the wrong thing still, but also she cares and she's like grown. Like, that's a really good balance that they You know, and managed. a big part of it is just his, it's, it's James Gunn's, his voice as a writer. Mm-hmm. is he's so good at this stuff. I've been saying like, this is like somebody handed him money to be like, um, here's like a hundred million dollars. Go take your trauma team film and like yeah. put it up on the big screen with this giant budget. Okay. Like, so like it's nuts. There was a great scene that I rewatched today that I kind I caught it the first time, but I didn't fully capture what was even happening. And it's when they're letting Polka Dot Man out of introducing him for the first time. And then Sean Gunn is yeah. like there and he's got calendar like man. some terrible. Well, is that who he is? Yeah, yeah. he's calendar yeah. man. He's got like November or whatever what is tattooed on his forehead it's it's uh, like the three three digit abbreviations of like April June July okay so he's just like hey I come work my nephew's birthday party you loser whatever and and then it swivels over and shows Weasel, who is body moat captioned by Sean, Sean Gunn, Gunn. Yeah. just like licking the inside of the window of his cell. And <laughs> those and eyes, it, dude. I realized James so Gunn dumb. was playing against himself, and that he oh, was Sean in, Gunn. Sean Gunn oh, no. was in was in two people in that scene. <laughs> it's not even the first time he's done that because in so Guardians great. of the Galaxy, he does, he <laughs> plays the second in charge to Yondu and he also plays Rocket and he does have scenes where he's in both positions because he does the mocap for Rocket. Yeah. So he was like walking around in front of a green screen and then he was in the scene with the other actors. Like you talk about, they talk, you talk about guys like uh, Shane Black. One of the things, things he's kind of known for is his witty banter between his team guys when people are on a team there's always so much witty banter like that was one of the one positive things that I've ever heard anybody say about that Predators movie that he made <laughs> is that there is no like, that one was Robert Rodriguez he did The Predator sure The yeah. Predator yeah that one one of the only positive things I've heard anybody say about that movie is there's witty banter between the people but James Gunn really nails the witty banter better than he did in Gar- either Guardian of the galaxy like and those are good too by the way there's like, this great those line. have great one of moments. my low-key favorite lines of guardians of the galaxy is when yondu's trying to talk and he goes shut up cap i'm gonna say stuff like it's just like it <laughs> yeah. kills me every He's fucking so time good. so uh like harley quinn had so much wonderful personality in this movie where like she is there when javelin dies and he's like you are the only one worthy of carrying this javelin for and then he dies and she just tenderly up to his face for what starts slapping him for what and then like her like obliviousness to were you saying this to me earlier and i think jessica was saying this to me earlier today like her oblivious No, no, no. Her obliviousness to the fact that there are a bunch of soldiers with guns trained on her. She's like, he just told me I need to hold this for something, but he didn't tell me what to hold it for. Like, that's way more pressing of an issue to her than all of the people with (laughs) guns on her. Like, 
doesn't even – they are not even a, on her radar, less, let alone As a, a threat. threat yeah. Let alone a threat. She yeah. just doesn't – she's like – she's looking at them in like bewilderment. Like what whole, am I supposed to do with this? The whole you know? thing with Milton oh, where it's just yes. like Milton is following them. Who's and she's Milton? Like, no, who's Milton? He's like – he's been with us the whole time. No, he hasn't. I would remember is, that. Yeah. And then at the very <laughs> they end – show his corpse and then he's like, she's like, oh, Milton. Oh, that's Milton. And then later she thinks Idris Elba's character is Milton. <laughs> And he's like, wrong name. And she's like, no, we, we were talking three about that hour three conversation hours. <laughs> about how your name is built. <laughs> she amazing. also has my two favorite scenes in it, which is one, and this is my second favorite, is when she's slashing through all the guys, but the flowers are just See? flying mm. out with the blood. I love that because it's such a great encapsulation of what's actually going on in her fucked up mind. Yes. Yeah, like, you, you know that like those flowers are actually like bullet casings coming out of the guns and then and like, blood or like, blood yeah, like blood splattering out of people's necks and it's just like all these flowers flying out. Mm. Like she's Birds. fucking nuts. Yeah. But then also so when she finally takes the spirit to like cap off what you're talking about and leaps through Starro's eye and it's such a gross surreal hilarious moment where she's just like inside the eye and there's like all of this fucking liquid and then Rat Catcher 2 yes there's a character named Rat Catcher 2 has the all the best. rats come in and they're like chewing the fucking veins of the eyes and she just looks like yeah I'm having a great time here <laughs> like, <laughs> this is neat <laughs> it's just fantastic dude also you know not so go i want to i want to go back to that scene with the flowers you were talking about so that actually reminded me of the kingsman scene where all the heads were exploding yeah like it had a very similar tone to it yeah and it reminds me of two things one is (coughs) the voices with ryan reynolds where he's got schizophrenia and his cat and his dog are like his good and bad halves and they talk to him about uh tell him to kill people and stuff the dog doesn't want him to kill people but the cat does and at the end of the movie he's like his house is burning down and he's gonna die in the fire and he kind of just like goes off and the movie doesn't end with a horrible burning it ends with like him having a music video about having a happy time or some shit and he's like dancing with all the people he's killed (laughs) and like that altered reality thing and then it also reminds me of (laughs) of Aqua Teen Hunger Force when they're talking about standards and practices (laughs) and it one point they're like they shoot a nun and blow her head off with a shotgun and like blood starts gushing out of the top of her neck and they go wrong big x and then they shoot her with the shotgun and her head blows off but a rainbow comes out instead and it goes like green check mark acceptable <laughs> i also don't want to gloss over because we're coming to the end of the podcast here sly Kind of fucking kills it as King oh, Shark dude. when he does the voice. Like the More whole perfect thing casting. Where they have him like talking about how he's going to sneak in there. And they're like, how are you going to sneak in there? And he's like, big, big mustache. mustache. Half the time he sounds like a boxer who's had one too many concussions. And yeah. It yeah. really works for the character. But he has – he made me feel things. Like in that same scene I brought up with Ratcatcher 2 when she's like – she says like – He's about to eat We her. don't eat our friends, <laughs> right? She's like, we don't – 
you don't eat your friends, right? And he goes, he goes, I know friends. And he just is like so in that moment, he's so vulnerable. And kudos to James Gunn oh, for not taking the easy thing because I suspected that he would try and eat her again for like an extra joke. And then they would kind of offhand it. But, but they never do that because they actually want to show that like, oh, no, he's King actually Shark got a friend. has a mind. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But not like not much of a mind. Not much of one. <laughs> not much of one. He I would say he's probably like 13, 12 or 13. Oh, man. Oh, I, was like, 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 I was like five say, or six. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Me, too. me too. But like, he's very juvenile. Age. Yeah, maybe emotionally. Yeah. And like he – but I think that his lack of like vo- uh, vocabulary is more due to the fact that he's half shark than due to the fact that he has a child's mind. Oh, you yeah. But I mean? also like, he has a child's mind. Like when he's by the aquarium and looking at the pretty things and then he's running down and they're chasing him. Like I could see a five-year-old doing yeah, that. I know, but 100%. I could also see a 13-year-old doing that. <laughs> I could see my 13-year-old doing that. I could see your, uh, what, 12-year-old, 11-year-old? Mm. I could see your... Maybe for a minute. Yeah, not nearly as long. <laughs> no. <laughs> but also not half shark. Yes. All, right. <laughs> all the casting, wait, we can't... All the casting is great. Uh, my favorite scene was when TDK, and I won't tell you what TDK stands for, when he activates his ability. That's his name. <laughs> it's letters. <laughs> Your name is letters. Oh, Flu Laborg, by the way, Javelin, Flu Laborg. Uh, you know, the the whole team that goes, they all team they a. still were given moments to shine. Everybody kind of got moments to shine, whether they were big moments like Mongal and her big moment of birth to death <laughs> horribly. Or uh the little moment of like Blackguard pulling toilet paper off his shoe and dropping it on the floor like a dick bag. <laughs> Here you go, champ, or whatever he says. Ugh. TDK, Nathan Fillion, during the promotion of the film, it was uh, discovered that in the city of Edmonton, they had a community center and a petition was going around to rename it the Nathan Fillion Civilian Pavilion because <laughs> Nathan Fillion's from Edmonton. And the cast found out and they put out a big tweet video where they all were like saying, you absolutely that, Edmonton, please do this. And it successfully happened. I don't know if it's a permanent name. I think they just changed the name for like a week to celebrate the movie coming out. I don't think it's a permanent name. It should be. It'd be on the tip of people's minds. But uh, they did make the name change, which is pretty (laughs) awesome. Like that kind of thing is becoming more popular. You know, John Oliver's popularized that a lot. Like when he had his beef, his like fake beef with Danbury, uh, Connecticut. There was that, but there was also the what I was. Yeah, that's I was the, thinking of. What was it? Who's that? that? Russell Crowe. He had like a fake beef with Russell Crowe, and Russell Crowe like got the teamed up with koala chlamydia wing of some. It's animal like the hospital. John Oliver koala, koala, koala chlamydia, chlamydia treatment, treatment ward center. center. <laughs> yeah, and he teamed up. Russell Crowe teamed up with Steve Irwin's family because they're the ones that run. Right, the, but that the even started earlier because it was uh, John Oliver getting in 
to the the, uh, that's the auction beef. for his. For well, that's his, where the beef I know, came but from, I just want to address beef. it because it's hilarious. Like he bought the fucking jock strap that Russell Crowe had from Gladiator, and Russell Crowe donated a- it to the last blockbuster in Alaska, which is now <laughs> in the last blockbuster of Oregon. Like it's the very last blockbuster. They moved everything from Alaska. Yeah, because to that Oregon. one shut down, so um, there's only one left. So, uh, and the reason that Russell Crowe was auctioning all his weird movie paraphernalia off was because he was getting divorced and he was being a dick about it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In an entertaining way to us regular normals. We have to cut out. Take it easy. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. Follow us or reach out on Instagram at NSF underscore network, Facebook's Not Safe for Network page, or email Podcast at gmail.com. Not Safe for Network was created and hosted by Carl Porterman, Brandon Beardsley, and Alex Small. Produced by Alex Small. Subscribe to all the podcasts on our network. Season 3 of Movies with Wrestlers has Eric and Connor answering the question on everyone's mind. Who's better, The Rock or John Cena? Every week, a cosmic void has Jeremiah and Biggs deconstructing influential movies. Not Safe for Network examines the zeitgeist through rabbit holes, deep dives, interviews, and pop culture battles weekly. And if you need some classic TV talk, catch up on the previous three seasons of In Syndication.